I wonder if you know anyone who used to be a Christian. I'm guessing you do. I know some people used to be a Christian. So they were a Christian at one time, and now they're not a Christian. Now, we've got to be careful about how we talk about this, but people depart from Christ. I, I watched a video yesterday because I was going to talk about this, and I found this video on YouTube, this young man who used to be a Christian, and he's completely rejected Christ. He was... He, he came into the church when he was in like 14 years old. He actually was studying to be a pastor, and while he was studying to be a pastor, he decided he didn't believe any of this. And now he has a YouTube channel that's called Skeptical Skepticism or something like that. He used to be a Christian. In fact, one of the videos I watched that he made was, I really was a Christian. Like, I guess it's important for him to point out that he really was a Christian because he wants to talk people out of it, I guess. Not sure why. People depart from Christ. And the text we're going to look at in Hebrews this morning is a warning to the church about that about the possibility of departing from Christ. And it uses the expression, falls away. What's going on when someone falls away? Now, as I mentioned, we're going to have to be very careful when we talk about this. And uh, I hope we can be. I think we're going to take more than one Sunday to really fill this in. Uh, but today, we just want to ask the question, what's going on when someone used to be a Christian? Well, to begin with, uh, let's just read this text. Hebrews 6, we're going to read the first six verses. You should know, this text of Scripture is kind of notorious it's famous for being really difficult and controversial. Hard to correctly interpret. In fact, I, by my count, there's six different, at least, I'm sure there's more actually, but six primary categories of different understandings of what this text is trying to tell us. For me today though, what I want to dwell on is the warning Who's it for and what's it about? And I think that it, it's important to uh, start at the beginning of this chapter where, where the warning really is, which is let us uh, move away from the basics and into the fullness of the gospel. Let us... He, call, he says he uses the expression "carry on to maturity." So let's just read the text. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. <laughs> wow. As we start to think about this, I, I think the right beginning point is to remember what the book of Hebrews has set up until now about Jesus, because Jesus is, of course, the point of the book of Hebrews, the supremacy of Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews wants his readers to understand what a privilege it is to be associated with Jesus. That there's no higher calling than to be with Jesus. And so from the very beginning of the book, it's about the, the exaltation of Christ. Now that doesn't mean we're lifting him up beyond where he is. It means we're recognizing how high he is. So who is Jesus in the book of Hebrews? And I put in your notes page there a list. And we're going to notice something about this. Who is it that these people that are imagined here in chapter 6, or described rather than imagined, in chapter 6, who is it that they're turning away from? Well, in Hebrews 1, verse 2, in other words, in the very first sentence of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as the eternal son, the one who will inherit all things, who is also the creator of all things, who is the very image of God, the, ex the radiance of God's glory. In other words, how do we see the shine on God in the man Jesus? who is the exact representation of, his, of God's nature, who is the sustainer of all things. He carries everything from its beginning in him to its conclusion in him, Alpha, Omega. He's the heir of all things. He made purification of sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who he is. And the really, the thing we want to pull out here is he made purification of sins. He's the visibility of God to man, and he's the healer of the sin problem. In chapter 2, verse 2, he made salvation from just retribution. <laughs> so, uh, someone who is, has sinned, has acted or thought or in any way been against God is uh, someone who should receive retribution from God. 
Retribution is just. And Jesus made salvation. If you ask the question in the Christian faith, what are you saved from? The answer is God. Because you've turned against God, you are in trouble with God. And Jesus provides salvation from that just retribution. In chapter 2, verse 9, he tasted death for everyone, bringing many sons to glory, he says, to become the founder of salvation. In verse 14 of chapter 2, through death he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he did this in order to deliver the offspring of Abraham, to deliver, that word, that's another word for save. And the offspring of Abraham are the people who believe. In, chapter seven, in verse 17 of chapter 2, he's a merciful and faithful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. You're starting to get the idea that there's a problem with the sin of people, and Jesus is the one who resolves the problem. And here he makes propitiation. That's a word. That word means satisfaction. It's how he saves us from just retribution. He satisfies God's judgment for us by dying himself. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's the apostle, the one sent, and the high priest, the one who makes a sacrifice for our, of our confession. In chapter 3, he's the son over the household of God. He's compared to Moses, who's a member of the household of God, and Jesus isn't a member of the household of God. He's faithful as the son over the household of God. And if we ask Hebrews chapter 3, who is or what is the household of God? The answer is those who believe, we. He says, we are the household of God if we hold fast our confession to the end. He says, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and are boasting in our hope. He says later, we have, come to, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, we can get caught up in this and get uh, worried especially in this conversation, we started by talking about how people depart from Christ. We'll get back to that. In chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's described as our priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 9, he is the source of eternal salvation. Now that should be encouraging. Salvation is eternal. 
there isn't any way to be saved temporarily. We'll, we'll talk about this. But this is the Jesus that people turn away from. And here's the word I would use to summarize all that. Jesus is Savior from sin and its penalty. Well, here's a long version. Jesus is the high priest, the eternal son, made flesh, the image of God, incarnated to give his life, a sacrifice for sin, and so to restore believers to righteous standing and full access to God, eternal life, salvation. Jesus is the Savior. Now, here's, I think, the beginning of the problem of people departing from Christ. They're looking for something besides that in relation to Christ or in relation to the church or in relation to God or religion or whatever. And if you're looking for something else, something other than high priest savior, something other than the solution to your problem of judgment from God, Well, he's going to be a big disappointment because he's the savior. He's, he's not a therapist. We had these bumper stickers a long time. I, you never see them anymore. We used to see these bumper stickers in America, of course, that said this, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, I'm telling you, if, Jesus, if you're looking to Jesus to be a good co-pilot, he is going to disappoint you because he doesn't accept that role. He didn't come to fill in the gaps when you accidentally fall asleep at the switch and thereby keeping you on course in life. He came to save you from certain destruction. So if you're looking to God, to Jesus, to be your co-pilot, well, there's going to come a day when your life will crash and he will not be there. He's going to disappoint you. This reminds me of the Jews. When the day, in the days of Jesus. Jesus was a bad Messiah. Because what they looked for in Messiah was not anything he came to provide. They wanted the Messiah to kick Rome out of Jerusalem to bring victory and vindication back to Israel to justify their own righteousness, to validate their 
righteousness. And Jesus came not to validate anyone's righteousness, but to give his life a sacrifice for our unrighteousness. Which, of course, if anyone's going to receive that, they must acknowledge that they have an unrighteousness problem. This was what the Pharisees could not do. And so their Savior disappointed them because they weren't really looking for a Savior. So if you're looking for something other than a Savior, if you're looking for any temporal gain or self-validation, Jesus is not your guy. You should look out, you should seek out, I don't know, Tony Robbins or somebody, a good life coach. If you're, if you're looking for Jesus to be your money-solving agent or to bring you fame or power or political success or a good career or healthy living or freedom from suffering in general or even fellowship and community. If you're looking to Jesus even for moral purity or fortitude or superiority or if you think Jesus might be a really good life coach or therapist or if you're looking for self-assurance Here's what Jesus said about self-assurance. <laughs> you need to die to yourself. That is not self-assurance. If you're looking to Jesus for religious comfort, you know, lots of people come into the church because the church has a sort of ritual and a ceremony and a comforting in a certain way. If you're looking for ways you can make yourself acceptable to God, well, you won't get past the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. Jesus says to people who are trying to make themselves acceptable to God, look, I know you've heard that, uh, yeah, you know, adultery is bad. But let me tell you, if you've looked at someone with lust in your heart, you've sinned the sin of adultery. Now, he's not saying, he's not trying to tell you that looking lustfully at someone is just as bad as actually committing adultery, but he is saying, your problem with God is deeper than just your outward behavior. It's a problem of the heart. And if you think Jesus is going to teach you how to make yourself acceptable to God, he will disappoint you. And... Consequently, you'll probably depart from him. If you're looking to Jesus for anything 
for anything that a person might gain in this life without resorting to the cross, you're going to get disappointed. There are many Christians who follow Christ for all of these reasons. And they're either going to be dishonest or they're going to lose Christ at some point because he's just unnecessary for these things. If you're looking to Jesus to provide you with anything that doesn't depend on the cross, then what's the cross for? And Jesus is probably going to disappoint you, and you probably won't stick with him. Now, the warning in our text is a warning to move on to maturity in Christ. The writer of Hebrews is worried about a group of Christians because he's worried that there are people in, in the fellowship of the church, in the community of Christ, that don't really see Christ for who he is. So he's exhorting us over and over. You know, it's pay attention to Christ. Pay attention. Draw near to God in Christ. Hold fast the confession of our faith in Christ. These are the constant exhortations. And in our text, it says, move on. <laughs> Carry on to maturity in Christ, in the word of Christ, in the gospel of God's grace. This isn't saying you get saved and then you move on to some, some other thing for life. You get saved by the gospel, but the Christian life is something else other than the gospel. He says, move on in the word of Christ, just as Paul writes in, in Colossians. The same way that you received Christ, so walk in him. So our exhortation here isn't to move away from the truth of God's grace toward us in Christ, his free gift of salvation in Christ, it's not to move away from that. It's to move deeper into it and to continue walking in it. And, of course, that's what we talked about last week. But I want to summarize. What does it mean to move on to maturity? And I printed this in the bulletin. It means trusting yourself to Christ, grow, in your understanding and appreciation of the grace of God in Christ, salvation. Grow in your understanding and appreciation of your salvation in Christ because you've trusted yourself to Christ and begin to live a life that reflects that reality in sacrificial love toward others. And if you try to do that, you will find more occasions to trust yourself to Christ. It's a spirally kind of thing. So I trust myself to Christ. I see the cross, and I see the, 
resurrection and I see the intercession of Christ for me, a sinner at the right hand of God, such that I can march into the throne of God and ask for whatever I want. And he will give me whatever is best for me, whatever I want. And so I have this standing because I've trusted myself to Christ. Well, I have this standing because Jesus died to give it to me. I'm like that thief on the cross. I, I come before God, and if God says, what are you doing here? I said, he said, I can come. I'm with him. And Jesus says, yes, he's with me. Every day, when I fail, when I don't act in perfect righteousness at all times, and trust me, I've never acted in perfect righteousness at any time. When I fail, Jesus is there to say, he's with me. And I am saved, and I can talk to God like he's my Abba, Father, God Almighty, from whom I should expect judgment, I receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying in this warning is, press into that. Move forward in full appreciation of that reality. And then he says, why he wants people to do that. He says, because it's impossible to restore certain people to repentance. <laughs> so he's looking at a group of Christians, Christians, people in the church, and he's concerned because some of those people have been talking because trouble is coming. And because trouble is coming, some of them are thinking, maybe I won't claim the name of Jesus. Maybe I'll leave the church and return to the synagogue. And in this case, leaving the church would have meant renouncing your baptism to say, that's not me, to say, I used to be a Christian. So who are these people that can't be restored to repentance? Well, there's six things about them. It's a series of six statements. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, sharers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. And they've fallen away. You know, there's a group of people who turned back from Jesus in the book of John. You remember this? It's in John chapter 6. And verse 53. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true blood, true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did and did not believe, who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the, uh, it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now this statement that Peter makes on behalf of the twelve is it. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So people deserted Christ and people didn't. And the difference is what? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We have trusted ourselves to you. We've trusted ourselves to you. That passage we read in 1 John kind of tells the whole story. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. Then it says this, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. People who are really saved don't depart. Now, the reason for that is, is multiple. But the main reason is what Jesus says here. Did I not choose you? And he said this, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by 
the Father. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So Jesus says, right in the book of John, no one can take you from the Father's hand. No one can take you from my hand. The reason people who are truly saved, they don't depart. Well, it's partly they don't depart, and it's entirely because God sees to it. He has a grip on me that is much more secure than my grip on him. So now we have to account for these expressions. They've been enlightened. They've heard the gospel. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the spirit. They've tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. They've fallen away. We need to think of this in the context of Hebrews, especially chapter 3 and chapter 4, where we have this other warning about don't be like those ancient Israelites who walked led by God himself right up to the very border of the promised land and then refused to go in. What was their problem? Well, it's described with two words, disobedient, they didn't go, and unbelief. They didn't go because they didn't believe. It's that simple. There are two of them that did believe who said we can go anyway because God said he would do it. We were right, we can't do it, but he can. He said he would, so we should. And they didn't believe it, and so they refused. And this is the context in which we read these things. Here's something very interesting. In the book of Hebrews, one thing is at the heart of receiving the salvation Jesus died to provide one thing, and that is faith. The whole theme, you know, when we get to chapter 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, we have these two examples from the Old Testament, the example of the faithless in chapter 3 and 4, and the example of the faithful in chapter 11. The difference is belief, faith. Here's something missing from this list about these people. They've been enlightened, they've, been ta they've tasted, they've become partakers, they've tasted the good word, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. You know, there's something mysteriously missing from that list. Believe, trust, faith. There's two things that are missing. This is what's going on here. The two things that are missing are the necessity of the cross and faith in it. Why do people depart from Christ? They don't need the cross. And they don't trust Christ. I was telling you about this video I watched. This guy gave his long testimony, his story of his Christian, his being a Christian. I, I was almost weeping at the end of this story. This, this young man, as a boy, as a young man, 14 years old, he came into the church. He, he grew up in something. He became more and more committed. He'd go to summer camp, you know how that is, right? And he'd make a 
he'd come back and he wanted, he said, I, God called me to preach a sermon. This happened three times. And then finally God, when he was in college, he thought God called him to, well, now he would say that's impossible because there is no God. But he, God called him to ministry. And so he began to prepare for ministry. And when he started studying philosophy, the whole thing came apart. Now, does that mean Christians can't study philosophy? No! It does not mean that. In fact, Christians should be better philosophers than anyone, and there's no reason you can't be, because the truth is God in Christ. But here's what had me nearly weeping as I watched this video. It was all about I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I think God, I thought God spoke to me, so I did this. I watched two of these videos, <laughs> never one time, not one time, did this young man confront the cross. I think, what uh, an indictment of the Christians around that young man. I don't know if he needed the cross. Well, he didn't. I don't think he ever understood it. I don't think he ever actually saw Jesus. He never. He he talked about having a relationship with God. Barely mentioned Jesus. What's going on here? Two things are missing. The necessity of the cross and trusting yourself to it. If, if I need the cross, I take it. <laughs> if I see the need, I'm, go I'm going to latch on to it. And you cannot get me to let go of it. I can't imagine. It's, it's utter foolishness. I don't... I. I think maybe like the writer of the book of Hebrews, I can't understand how anyone could possibly actually know Christ and think of leaving Christ. And if Christ is who he says he is, you'd have to be insane. So one of the things we're going to say about this group of people is they're certainly very much involved in the life of the community of Christ, they've probably been baptized. In fact, I think that idea of them uh, being enlightened is a reference to their, back, their baptism, and their having tasted the heavenly gift is a reference to receiving the communion in the church. And their having, being partakers of the spirit is a reference to a ceremony in which someone laid hands on them and everyone thought they received the spirit. But they didn't. They've heard the testimony of the gospel. They, it's been expounded before them. They've tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. I, you know, if you hang around in this church or any church where we know Christ, you will, you will know of things he did. I can't 
be really adequately explained except as miracles. They've seen all of this and fallen away. How does someone do that? I think because their concept of Jesus is not Savior. I desperately need salvation from sin. I can get life coaching from anybody who's a little bit smarter than me. And I don't mean to say that Jesus and a relationship with Christ and relationships within the body of Christ won't be good for wise living. They will be. But if the thing I'm looking for in Christ is just that, then I've missed the point. And I can depart if I see a better source of wisdom somewhere else. I can go wherever somewhere else is. So the question is, and I think about the church around that guy whose videos I was watching, and I think the question for us is, <laughs> can we not be that church where someone can be a leader? This guy, when he was a senior in high school, he was practically the youth pastor of this church who does not know Christ. I want it to be unavoidable <laughs> to be a part of this church and not know that you need the death of Christ. When you consider Christ, do you see yourself as a sinner in need of the salvation he gives? If not, this warning is for you. There's something more. And this warning is for us. Look around. Hey, everyone. We need to press into the grace of God in Christ, the cross, the message of the cross. I had a pastor who said, you need to pitch your tent between the cross and the empty tomb. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and each other all the time. I don't grow out of this, I grow into it. Do you see him like Peter did, like the disciples did, as the one who has the words of eternal life? You can't desert that guy. If you see Jesus as the one, the one who has the words of eternal life, you're never going anywhere. You'll cling to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, he's clinging to you. He's got a hold of you. This is <clears throat> the great warning of this text. You could be a Christian without Christ. I hope that today we've helped to clarify things so you know <laughs> to really be a Christian, you got to have Christ. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this great Savior, <clears throat> for the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to continue to walk forward in this great message of your grace, to press into it, to study it, to learn it, to grow, not by 
not by figuring out how to live our lives more effectively, but by learning how to trust you more and more each day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.